This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book, and it is number four of a series dealing with the prophecy of Daniel. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture, and if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little while and read with us the 17th chapter of the book of Ezekiel. We have read that <coughs> passage in Ezekiel. It's very difficult to interpret, but you can see that God is dealing with the people of Israel in relation to the fact that there came a moment when he said to Nebuchadnezzar, Thou art this head of gold. And some of the kings of Israel, they made promises and broke them. And God is concerned that whether you make promises to him, to one of your own brethren, or to a heathen king, you're supposed to keep it. They turned to Egypt, as they did many times. And then at the end, it looks down the ages to that tree that was despised at first, and yet ultimately is exalted. And in the um, Chaldean Targum, which is a commentary on the book, it says that that tender branch is the Messiah. Of course, they said many things in the Old Testament refer to the Messiah until Christ came. Then they shut down on many of those things and said them no more. But that is only just incidental to us this evening because I thought we are going to look at another passage in this book which speaks about a tree and I felt it might be useful if we had the colouring of it in the language of Ezekiel. I don't know whether you friends know all about the book of Ezekiel, because if you do, I'm going to change places with you. I always remember after once giving every ounce that I'd got at a meeting. Uh, it may not look as though I give every ounce, but I sometimes do. Somebody came up to me and said, oh, could you give me just in one word the key to Ezekiel? And before I went out into a blank, I just murmured the word cherubim. That may be something to go on with. But still, we've got enough on our plate with this book of Daniel. <coughs> now, we who live under the sound of the gospel, fully preached, can say, I believe, with all authority, that salvation is by faith and by grace. That we have no warrant to say that a person who has no faith in Christ is nevertheless all right. You'll be saved. But the trouble is, because we believe that and believe it with all our heart, we may have leaned to the idea that the heathen who have never heard, well, they've never believed in Christ and therefore they're gone. See? But you do remember, don't you? Paul ventilates this question, how shall they believe on him of whom they've not heard? That's one point. In the same epistle to the Romans, he says in chapter 2, that those who have not the law, if they do the things in the law without knowing it, shall it not be reckoned unto them? And so God says, oh yes, wherever there's a seeker after me, whether he actually finds me consciously in this life or not, it's recognized. And then, coming to the lips of our Saviour himself, and that Saviour is the one to whom all judgment is given, He's anticipated what he's going to say in the last day. I don't suppose very many people would think very favourably of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
But our Saviour, who knew the hearts of all men, said it would be more tolerable in the day of judgment to Sodom and Gomorrah than it would for one of those towns that had seen his miracles and rejected him. So don't you think we are wise to emphasize for all we're worth salvation by faith, where the gospel is preached, and then thankfully leave the faith of the heathen to the God we trust. Alright. Well now that's all just to bring before you two chapters in the book of Daniel. And they are chapters 4 and 5. They deal with two kings of Babylon. The first and the last. Now if we were not thinking about this book at all, and we had some friends and we said now, could you give me the name of any writer in the Bible who begins with the letter A? Oh yes, Amos. And with the letter B? And with the letter C? And we get down to the letter N, we'd say Nehemiah and Nahum. But I doubt whether any of us would say Nebuchadnezzar. But Nebuchadnezzar's written the whole solid chapter. He didn't write it for the Bible. Daniel merely copied it down and put it for us. It's Nebuchadnezzar's own personal statement. Now, I don't know whether you've read any of the inscriptions that have come down to us by Nebuchadnezzar and Sennacherib and others of that period. It was absolutely impossible for them to write without calling themselves almost every name you could think of that belongs to God. They were the most mighty upon the earth, the King of kings and Lord of lords is mild in comparison with what they said. And this very book sets before you an absolute autocrat. Whom he would he slew, whom he would he kept alive. This great Babylon that I have built. And he had something to boast about, speaking after the manner of men. And God had given him universal rule. Not merely over Babylon, but wherever men dwelt. Of course, he never ruled over the territory that God gave him any more than Adam did. But God could give him nothing less. When God passed over sovereignty to Nebuchadnezzar, he gave him universal dominion. But the man never reached it. Never could. But one day somebody here, didn't he? He addressed this proclamation to nations and peoples and languages. So that is also used of Christ. But in the one case it was limited by man's own ability, the other unlimited because of the fact that when he reigns, it's the Lord God omnipotent that reigns. Well now we look at this chapter 4. And before we go into the chapter 4, you might observe the way in which has been preserved in this book of Daniel one or two proclamations that were made in this day by heathen kings. Look at chapter 2. This again is Nebuchadnezzar, but he hasn't got very far. In this case, Nebuchadnezzar was amazed that Daniel was able to tell him the dream and explain it. It worked upon his heart and mind and he said in verse 46, Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel. Oh, you say, that was bad, was it? Oh, yes, that was bad. But don't forget that the end of the book, the book of the Revelation, an angel had to reprimand John for falling down to worship him. Don't forget, will you? He is a heathen man. But he, he did the wrong thing there. He worshipped Daniel and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odours unto him. But on the other hand, this was a man who was an absolute monarch. And he's worshipping a, a Jew who has become a prisoner 
You see what's happening? What a change of front is taking place. And the king said unto Daniel, answered and said unto Daniel, Of a truth it is, that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings. Because he's got to go further than that yet. But he's made a start, hasn't he? And revealer of secrets, seeing that thou couldest reveal this secret. Well then, we move from that to chapter 3. 29. <coughs> as a consequence, uh, chapter 8, as a consequence of the deliverance of the free men from the fiery furnace, we read in verse 28, then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't know whether he's the first one who says, Blessed be God, but if he is, some of us at the end of the line, we're very much like Nebuchadnezzar when we started, so we didn't know much about God, even though we were born in a so-called Christian land. He said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him. And have changed the king's word. That's something to remember. For even not, not allowing anybody to change his word. What he said went. And the anti-Christian power at the time of the end is spoken of in this same book. He sought to change times and seasons. But he says he's changed my word. Uh, and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. So here's a short decree issued by Nebuchadnezzar. This is what Nebuchadnezzar himself said. That every people, nation and language which speak anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, their houses shall be made a dunghill because there is no other God that can deliver after this thought. He's still pretty rough. He's still a bit untamed. But he made a step, you see. Now chapter 4. This is entirely, from one end of the chapter to the other, a transcription of that which he himself indicted, or caused to be written, and published at his own express wish throughout the length and breadth of his dominion. I don't think we've got on record anything parallel to this. When you think of the fact that David, a man after God's own heart, the sweet psalmist of Israel, for one whole year was in misery because he would not acknowledge his transgression until at last it was forced from him by the coming of his Nathan the prophet that he turned round and said, Thou art the man. Here's this man who had the upbringing and discipline and teaching and truth that David had, he's humbling himself before the whole of his people. I think we must remember that the Lord has written about such. That those who have not the law, if by nature they do the things that are in the law, shall it not be reckoned unto them? I think it will. Are you expecting to meet Nebuchadnezzar in the glory somewhere? Well, he may not be there where Christ sits at the right hand. He may be somewhere on the earth, but I think somehow this man is passing in to light and truth, if ever a man did, who could have held that because of false pride. So it starts. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, 
and to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied unto you. That's a nice thing for a warlike king to send out too. I can read in the New Testament one of the apostles saying, Peace be multiplied unto you. Anticipated by Nebuchadnezzar again, you see. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God has got this title now, the high God hath wrought toward me. How great are his signs. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. He's got to that, you see. And his dominion is from generation to generation. That's the way he starts. In the ordinary way, his proclamation would have been, I Nebuchadnezzar, my kingdom's an everlasting kingdom. But now he says it's his, not mine. Well, so he goes on. And in... Uh, the verses that follow, he tells you what took place. He had a dream. He dreamed about a tree. And the wise men were brought before him again, and none of them could make known, even as they had failed before. And at last, Daniel, verse 8, he came and he was addressed, and he was asked to give an interpretation of this dream. First of all, here's the dream itself. Verse 10. Thus were the visions of thine head of mine head in my bed. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and the height thereof was great. And the tree grew and was strong and the height thereof reached unto heaven. You just wonder about that, don't you? This reaching unto heaven uh, verse 20 The tree that thou sawest which grew and was strong as height reached unto the heaven. And again in 22 It is thou, O king, that art grown and become strong for thy greatness is grown and reaches unto heaven. It's three times in the one chapter. Did your mind go back to the first city of Babel? Babylon? They said, come to, let us build us a tower. A city and a tower. Our version says that shall reach unto heaven. The word reach isn't there. But there's still the same thought, unto heaven. Here's this challenging thought. Not merely to be great upon the earth, but reaching unto heaven. I think there's a thought there, don't you? Of the pride that was expressed by this man. And we go on. And he said, uh, The leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much. And in it was meat for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. I don't know whether you remember the parable of the mustard plant in Matthew, the 13th chapter. Why does that, how does that fit into the story in the parables of the mysteries of the kingdom? You see, in any members at work, he so tears among the wheat. He sowed the false seed among the truth. And then we have a parable of an abnormal growth. The, the Saviour said the mustard seed is the smallest of seeds that men sow in the earth. It's not the smallest seed that is. 
I suppose some of you have sent to the florist one time or the other, and you've opened the big packet, and down in the bottom corner is the minutest screw of tissue paper you've ever seen, and you just had a oop, and away went all the seeds you bought. Now, it doesn't mean to say that Christ didn't know that, because he did all. But he said that's the smallest seed used in agriculture. That's still challengeable. Could anybody find a smaller one? Now then, that's the point. The point of that parable is that Israel started not with great magnificence. God reminded them, I did not choose you because you were greater than any other people. You were the fewest in number. And the point of the parable is that the mustard seed became a tree. That's abnormal. A mustard seed should never become a tree. Here we have Israel who should have been content to be just what God had planned at the beginning, saying to Samuel, make us a king that we might be like the nations. They became a tree. And because of that overweening pride and going beyond the purpose of God, they failed. And here's this man. He's a great tree which reaches unto heaven. Now one of the characteristics that mark the evil of the mustard seed was the fowls of the heaven lodged in its branches. And the fowls of the heaven in the same set of parables was the wicked one who snatched away the good seed. So it's not a very good sign. It was supporting the agents of wickedness. Here's this tree of Nebuchadnezzar. There he is. And the fowls of the heaven lodge in his branches too. And then he said, I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold a watcher and a holy one. You can run those two together. Not two people, but not two definitions. But a holy watcher. He came down from heaven. And he cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree and cut off his branches. Shake off the leaves and scatter his fruit. Let the beasts get away from under it and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass. And that wants some understanding, doesn't it? What point is there in cutting down a tree and binding it with brass and iron? Only this, that in this very book of Daniel, the succeeding kingdoms after Babylon and Medo-Persia were brass and iron. Otherwise, there's no sense. That's on the surface. If there is one, it escapes me. But this is a mingled picture. This man had still got in the back of his head the image that had been interpreted. And he knew down the ages or the days that were following there were successive kingdoms, silver, brass and iron. And the angels reminded him that this is still going to be preserved, although cut down, not completely gone. And one day, perhaps, by the mercy of God, when hearts are changed, revive. For the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And the kings and the nations of those that are saved are going to bring their glory into the new Jerusalem. So, what about Nebuchadnezzar again? Well, I don't know. I'm not going to venture to guess. I leave that. But there's possibilities here, you see. So, nevertheless, leave the stumps in the root of the earth. And let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth, and let his heart be changed from man, and let a beast's heart be given unto him, and let seven times pass over him. Now this is cryptic again, isn't it? But you can see that this 
is a degradation. There is a disease called lycanthropy, which means that you imagine that you're a wolf or you're an animal. And you act like it. And in this book of Daniel, you're told that the final phases of Nebuchadnezzar's dominion that starts as a head of gold degenerates until the world will be governed apparently by wild beasts, just monsters. That's the way in which things are headed. His heart was changed. And then he says, let seven times go over him. Seven times what? Oh, that's not the meaning. The word time is used in prophecy sometimes to indicate a period that's not necessarily seven years. It may be. In this very prophecy we have the words a time and times and dividing of time. And in the book of the Revelation that's picked up again. A time, times and a half. And in the very next verse where we read that in Revelation 12 it tells you that it's 1,260 days. Or another passage says the same period is 42 months. And simple arithmetic shows you that a time times and a half is one plus two plus half, that's three years and a half. We are now right into the last phase of prophecy by that, that point. Taken right to the end again, in the midst of that period, the covenant which the evil one will make with Israel will be broken and the day of Jacob's trouble will burst over them, but run its course and finish. Well, now we have this vision. Uh, what's it all to mean? It says, This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones with this object, to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. Well, Daniel interprets and tells him the purpose he said in the middle of verse 19, My Lord, the dream be to them that hate thee, and the interpretation to thine enemies. He said in verse 22, Is thou, O king, that art grown and become strong? And that was said of one of the most famous kings in Israel. He was marvelously helped till he became strong, and then he became presumptuous, and he died a leper. Here's this man, he's only following in the same groove. For thy greatness is grown and reaches unto heaven, and thy dominion to the end of the earth. That's almost an anticipation of the kingdom ruled over by Christ. Unto the ends of the earth, his dominion. And whereas the king saw a watcher and a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, Hew the tree down and destroy it, yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass in the tender grass of the field? This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High which is to come upon my lord the king. And he tells him that he shall be driven from the state of men, he shall imagine and act as though he were an ox or a beast until this period of time goes over him. And he's going to be like that Verse 26, until something occurs to his mind. And wheresoever they, uh, whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee. So, you see, they didn't cut it right down. 
They bound it and kept it in reserve. Thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee, after that thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. How far are they going to take those words, friend? If we say the sure mercies of David mean that David will one day sit upon the throne in the glory, what about this statement of Nebuchadnezzar? Did he acknowledge? If so, this says that your kingdom will be sure, Nebuchadnezzar. Am I saying too much? I'm rather letting the word of God suggest it to me, as I suggest it to you. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break all thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. And then all this came upon Nebuchadnezzar at the end of twelve months. You see, he'd been disturbed. But you know, we gradually get a bit used to it. And nothing happens and perhaps we were frightened and we need not be. And he spoke. Verse 30. Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power for the honour of my majesty? There are words here that almost are written at the end of the Lord's Prayer, the kingdom and the power and the glory. While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And so it happened. Now he was going to be in that position and that condition until he knew that the Most High ruled in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will. And we're told in verse 33, the same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar. Now verse 34, and at the end of the days, that's the seven times have gone over him, I, Nebuchadnezzar, this is the wonder of it, this is this king saying, this happened to me, not second-hand statements. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto him, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honoured him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? That man learned his lesson to make such a public statement as that. And at the same time, my reason returned unto me. And for the glory of my kingdom, mine honour and brightness returned unto me. And my counsellors of my Lord sought unto me. And I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. That's what God did to this man. He added excellent majesty to him. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honour the king of heaven. There's no other gods now being mentioned. He's not honouring and extolling Daniel with a piece of idolatrous worship. No, no, he's looking straight away. The king of heaven. All whose works are truth. And his ways judgment. And those that walk in pride he is able to abase. Would you look at verse 20? Uh, and chapter 5, possibly I mean, yes, chapter 5, I'm sorry, verse 20. 
This is referring in the next chapter to what has taken place. But when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. So you see, this is something that's still remembered. What happened to this man? Now with regard to this question of uh, being base, the, um, the word is also rendered to be humble. Will you look at chapter 5, 22? 5, 22. And thou his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this. That word humbled is the same word as based, uh, base, or the basest of men. We can say that he was the basest of men, Nebuchadnezzar. We can also say that the very word is the word to be humbled in a right and proper sense. And he says so. He was humbled. Otherwise he'd never have made this proclamation. He would have remained either in that awful state or if he emerged from it he would have been rebellious. But he wasn't. And again, in chapter 5, 19, we have the same word. And for the majesty that he gave him all people and nations and languages trembled and feared before him who we would he slew who we would he kept alive, who we would he set up, and who we would he put down. That's the word still, the word base. So we have this idea that he was humbled, really humbled. And he took the opportunity when he was given his reason and his majesty and his kingdom back again to make a public proclamation. Well now time will not permit us to dwell on all the items that flow out of this, but let's turn to the next chapter. For here we have the last king. Now, most of you know that the critics, years ago, said that this part of Daniel was false because they had a complete list of the kings of Babylon and Belshazzar was not mentioned. But, of course, what they were saying is that the Bible was telling anybody, however ignorant they may be, what the most learned person didn't know. And they're perfectly right, they hadn't got this list, but now they have. In the British Museum, you can read the prayer that was uttered by Belshazzar's father, that his son may be granted length of days and be kept from sin. Poor wretch he wasn't, was he? But the fact is that that prayer shows that Belshazzar was there, a king. And on top of that, there's a banking account in which Belshazzar takes a lease of property, promises not to cut down the trees and keep the property in good repair. Now, as I said before to some friends, and they looked at me very sympathetically, I said, I've known a banking account to become a myth, but I've never yet found a myth having a banking account. This man's no myth. This man's as real as any king that's ever sat upon the throne. And the reason why the trouble, first of all, came about is this, and it's in this book, incipiently, that the father of Belshazzar was away. The true king was away on a military expedition and he left behind him Belshazzar, like the Prince of Wales, to rule in his stead. So when this man would reward Daniel, he says, I'll make you the third ruler in the kingdom. But he doesn't put to the bottom, see how true I am, I couldn't make it a second for either second. He just leaves it. That's this word of God, utterly trustworthy. And all the records now show that Belshazzar was there, a deputy for his father, and he was treated as king at the moment. Now, what about this man? As we read the story, it starts that Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords 
and drank wine before him, and then something came into his mind to do something outrageous. See, Nebuchadnezzar took the vessels from the house of God because that was right. He was taking them captive. But he didn't do despite, he left them. This man says, bring them out. We'll speak about this God of this people. And they praised, they used the very vessels of the of the temple to praise the gods of wood and stone. Verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, brass and iron and wood and stone. And then, in the same hour, came forth the fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the, pl- the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. And then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against another. Then once more there's a shout for the astrologers and the Chaldeans. Show me what it means. Whoever does so, he said, shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about his neck and shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. That's the end of verse 7. Well, they all looked at him and they didn't know what to make of it. Now verse 10. Now the queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet house. And the king, queen spake and said, O king, live forever. Let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. There is a man in thy kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of thy father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him, whom the king, Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, the king, I say, thy father, made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. This queen wasn't taking part in that orgy. She came in when she heard of what was troubling. And she said, there's the man. And when he speaks about the father, it doesn't mean just one generation. It meant two or three. Back to Nebuchadnezzar. Then Daniel is brought. And he is told that what would happen if only he would give the interpretation. So we find in verse 17, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let thy gifts be to thyself, and give thy rewards to another. You see, this is man is not taking bribes. Yet I will read the writing unto the king, and make known to him the interpretation. And this is what he said to him, All thou king, the Most High gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And for the majesty that he gave him, don't forget this is continually said that God gave this man exceeding majesty. Thou art this head of gold. All people, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would he slew? Whom he would he kept alive? Whom he would he set up? Whom he would he put down? And then he brings before him the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. But when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. And he was driven from the sons of men and his heart was made like the beasts and his dwelling was with the wild asses They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men 
and that he appointed over it whomsoever he will. Now this is rehearsing this story in the ears of Belshazzar. And Bel, his son, old Belshazzar, has not humbled thine heart. Now don't you see? That's a reflect, isn't it? You haven't done what Nebuchadnezzar did. He gives all that list of Nebuchadnezzar's greatness to enforce the fact that even Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself. And you, well you're not a patch on Nebuchadnezzar. You haven't humbled your heart, you see. Those around you is all this. See, it couldn't be said that Nebuchadnezzar knew all this. He was starting to blank. He was just a heathen and a pagan. But look what he learned and what he confessed. He says, now you've had all that in front of you. And look at what you've done. You've done an aggravating act, which Nebuchadnezzar never did. But I've lifted up myself against the Lord of heaven. And I have brought the vessels of his house before thee. And thou and thy lords, thy wives and thy concubines have drunk wine in them. And thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold and brass and iron and wood and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know. And the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified. Would you glimpse at that chart for the moment and look at the bottom? Thou knowest, thou hast not glorified these gods of silver, etc. Over that side in the last chapter, the last verses of Romans, the first chapter, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. And they made unto themselves an image like a corruptible man. They were doing the same thing. And this is what is held against this man, this king Belshazzar. Then was the part of the hand sent for him, and this writing was on, was written. This is the writing that was written. Mini, mini, tiku, you fasting. Now the word mini means the word mat. It comes from the word moon. The word tiku is the Chaldee pronunciation of the word shekel, which means Money that's weighed. So the slang term weigh out is a classic, so you're all right. Weighed. You weighed out certain amount of money you read of Abraham. And you fasting is the bit that sometimes folks are puzzled over because in the interpretation he doesn't say you fasting. Shall we look at the interpretation? This is the interpretation of the thing, meaning. What's that mean? Numbered. God has numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Now, Daniel might have made a mistake, mightn't he? There may have been successes to Belshazzar. Let's look at the last two verses. Verse 30. In that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain, and Darius the medium took the kingdom. He was the last king. It's finished. And while he was having this roistering drunkenness, the enemy was approaching. They were altering the course of the river. They walked through and took the city without battle. That's what was happening. He didn't know it, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did. So Daniel could say that confidently. Now, Tekel, Shekel, thou art weighed in the balances. One of the things that I think we want to remember is the absolute righteousness of God. The symbol that's used in the Old Testament is the use of gravity. Of course, Newton wasn't born at that time, but God knew all about gravitation. And he uses either a plumb line or a pair of balances. In both cases, the building to a perpendicular or the weighing of material 
is the action of gravity. And do what you will, you can't influence gravitation. It won't alter, not for the king of kings on this earth. That's the principle. Sixteen ounces to the pound is God's statement concerning righteousness. You can't fob God off with fourteen ounces. And it's a silly thing for a person to criticise the law which says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and say that's outrageously savage. That's silly. Because every person who goes out shopping this weekend will be expecting to get 16 ounces of the pounds of the butchers and the grocers and will be outraged if you said, well, what a savage you are. You see, what we are doing, we're mixing up mercy with righteousness. Even Shakespeare could put it right there. The quality of mercy is not strained. It falls as a gentle rain from heaven upon the place to be. Shylock, in the course of justice, None of us would see salvation. If you haven't got 16 ounces to the pound, friends, flee unto the Lord who has provided a righteousness which will be accepted. But don't try to make one up yourself and give God a dividend. And here this man is weighed and found wanting. Now the next word, period. And you may say to me, well it doesn't say period, it says you pass it. All well. Supposing you had on a wall these words, uh, numbered, weighed, and divided. Would you have to interpret to the person the word and? Well, I suppose not. Well, all right then. That's simply the letter U. The vog in the front is the letter U. Now, when you put the letter U in front of the letter P, in order to make it easier to speak, you change it from the hard P to the PH. And when you take the letter away from it and take the and away from it, the dictionary word is not P-H, it's P. See? And then the ending you pass in is similar to our I-N-G or E-N at the end of words. You don't look in the dictionary to find what the word means reading necessarily. You look at the word read. So that little bit, you see, is simply a bit of grammar. doesn't matter. He said there are three words there. Numbered, weighed, divided. And then further, it so happens that the word period could mean not only divided, but it also was the pronunciation that referred to the Persian. You see, that's a play upon words. If we might say the same thing in this country, somebody at Buckingham Palace will suddenly see the writing on the wall. Your kingdom is scotched and given to the Scots. You see, just playing with words like that. Because those will never happen. It's still. You see, that's it. So he made those three words live. But they pronounced the doom upon this king of Babylon. There's a wonderful lesson here somewhere if we can only see it. How God treated with Nebuchadnezzar is one way. How he treated with Belshazzar after he'd had all that exhibition is another way. Now we go back to Matthew 11. Woe unto thee, Corazi. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. Why? Well, I don't think the Lord said that Corazi and Bethsaida did the wicked things that Sodom and Gomorrah did. But he said, if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. And so he said to Belshazzar, you were not left in ignorance of the presence of the great God. You know what exactly took place 
when your great father was humbled and that confessed it. And it was made a public proclamation. Oh, I hope I haven't wasted time this evening in trying to make these two chapters have a living message to us. Or would you rather be plunging into all the intricacies of written updates and chronology? I hope not. They are coming their right place. But this is providing a background. And God has so arranged this book that the first few chapters are all past history to help us when we get to the prophecy, which is future, to have something to guide us with regard to his ways with men that will then bring this awful issue to its conclusion. So I commend to you, once again, this book of Daniel. Prophecy has been written not to make us into second-rate prophets, but prophecy has been described in Peter as a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn. So for all the light that we get as we go through these intricate books, may we be thankful, but may we use it. God doesn't give us a lamp to hug to ourselves, he gives it to be a light unto our feet. It's supposed to reflect upon our pathway and give us some indication of how we should walk. Many things, of course, belong to the time which do not belong now. But a day is coming, and coming possibly very soon, when the times of Daniel will merge with the book of the Revelation, and the things which are obscure to us right now will then come out in their vivid light. But that may be because those in that day will need it. Whereas, blessed be God, we may not live to see that day, for our hope may take place before that dreadful storm burst of upon a poor distracted world. May the Lord bless to us then, as we continue our study in Daniel and the book of the Revelation, to see something of the finger of God and a little bit of the heart of the Most High.